0: You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church, Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. So today is the third Sunday of Advent. And anybody remember, what was the first Sunday of Advent? It was the Advent candle of hope. Okay, very good. And it was also called the Prophecy Candle. And the reason that we have hope is through the prophecies that were in the Old Testament that Christ is coming. And last week, the second candle of Advent represented what? Peace, okay? So we talked about how we alone can find true peace in Christ and that this is the promise of the Advent season, that Christ came into a world that was divided, a world that is broken, and he comes to us and God says that there is peace on earth Not just to all men, but especially to those on whom his favor rests. Those who know Jesus and those who are in relationship with him. And so the light of the world came to live in our hearts, to give us light for our own lives. And today we come to celebrate joy. And one of the things that we notice here, what do you notice about the Advent candle and the joy candle? It's pink, pink, okay, and the other candles are purple. And the purple represents penitence. It represents our need, our great need for God. Our sins, and so we need hope. Our restlessness, and so we need peace. But joy represents that great reality that God came to give us something so different than what we often experience in this world. Not just happiness and happenings, but the joy that can happen inside of our hearts. Also, this is the middle point of Advent. And so the pink pink candle represents right in between, because we have five candles. And so next week we'll see the candle of love, and on christmas eve we'll light the christ candle the birth of jesus and the the living presence of our holy lord and that's why the, the christ candle is white representing the purity of jesus but today we have an opportunity to talk about joy and today we have the privilege of being able to know a joy that would go in our lives that would be passed on to other people what makes you joyful Good food? Do you stand up and laugh and clap because you have good food? No. Okay. What else? What makes you joyful? What else makes you joyful? Getting an A? Yeah, sort of. Like, okay. Mom and Dad want A plus, but A's are good. All right. What else makes you joyful? Come on. Getting a full eight hours of sleep. Getting a full eight hours of sleep. That would make me joyful too. What else gets you joyful? Good health. Okay. What else makes you joyful? Wake up. Let's wake up. We, well, today's a day of joy. Okay, right. well, who's your favorite sports team? If they were to win, does that make you joyful? Yes, yes, okay. Your school wins. That makes you joyful. What else makes you joyful? Singing songs makes you joyful. I'm surprised nobody has said, you know what me really joyful? Love. Love makes me joyful. Knowing that my wife loves me, knowing that other people love me, knowing that I can give love to others. What else makes us joyful? <coughs> oh my goodness. We need joy. Greg. Knowing that God loves us just the way we are and that there is no condemnation, that there's nothing we can do to make God love us more and there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. There's no condemnation. There are a lot of reasons for joy. Now, we live in a world though of sorrow. Okay? We live in a world where there's gravity that keeps us on our seat, that keeps us from standing up and having joy. We live in a difficult world where there's suffering. So I have a question for you. Can you have joy even when you're suffering? Yes, sure. Can we have joy even when they're suffering? Yes, 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 yes. Okay, the answer is yes. But that's really not the most important question. I think that if you were to ask anybody who says that they are a believer in God... You say, can you have joy with suffering? They go, yes, because, you know, God would still be with us. We should still have joy. And, and if you're a real spiritual Christian, you would say, well, the Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. So I better say yes, because that seems to be what God wants, to always have joy always. So if I have suffering, then I can have joy. Well, we maybe we believe that. Maybe we would say that's true. But the real question is, do I have joy when? I am suffering. Not can I, but do I? Do I have joy even when life is so very, very hard? Now, we all want joy. There's a joy that we long for. And Christmas is the greatest joy that we could experience along with Easter. The birth of of Jesus and the resurrection of our Lord and today we're talking about the birth of Jesus and our world has taken the birth of Jesus and maybe with good intentions at the beginning but now it has become a matter of great consumerism and the picture of joy that we might have would be more like this at Christmas time just having oodles and oodles and oodles of presents so many you can't count so much that there's no room for even people Just to have so many gifts and so many things to open. And we think, well, that's what Christmas, when I was a little boy, that's what I thought Christmas was. That's why I couldn't sleep on Christmas Eve. Because I anticipated the joy of having so many presents the next day. But wanting presents can actually remove joy. Wanting things too much can actually be a hindrance to joy. Um, my children, when they were little, two of them went to a school uh, in Newport near Newport Beach. And so, Newport Beach is a very uh, pricey area, and most people who live in Newport Beach are multimillionaires. And so, my kids went to school with kids, other kids who are outside of their social economic reach. <laughs> and um, and so, but my kids would be very aware of what the other kids would say and what the other kids would want and the way the other kids would react. And so I remember my son came home one day after Christmas was over, and he said, uh, you know, I said, how was school today and, you know, what went on? He, oh, yeah, we were talking about our Christmas presents. And uh, one of my friends was just really sad. And, and I said, well, what was he really sad about? And he was really sad because he didn't get the boat he wanted. <laughs> now, now this is grade school kids. This is like Five fifth year old five year olds, I mean five grade fifth graders and sixth graders. And I said, What? And he goes, he didn't get the boat he wanted. But that means he got a boat, right? And so what was the problem? And he said, Well, he was really upset because he wanted a 20-footer, but he only got a 15-footer. Did you hear about the kid last year, true story, who drove his BMW and crashed it because he wanted uh, another car. I think he wanted a Porsche, but his parents only got him a BMW. Joy is not dependent upon what we get. But there are so many expectations that we can have that can ruin our joy. And so we want to have the right expectations. We want to have that which will genuinely give us joy. And so today we're going to see three actions that build the right expectations in our life. Three steps of faith that help us to have the right attitude so that we expect the very things that God wants to give us. And then indeed we'll have joy. So would you stand with me and we're going to read our passage today, which is in Psalm 126. Psalm 126, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6, which is all of Psalm 126 together. Let's begin. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord like streams in the Negev those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy he who goes out weeping carrying seed to joy will return with songs of joy carrying sheaves with him now before you sit down turn to somebody and say god wants you to have joy okay please be seated god wants us all to have joy now the good thing about christmas is that it does remind us of the birth of christ it does remind us of that which god has given to us as a mercy and as a grace and allowed us to celebrate christmas even in our worldly ways and so i have memories i have emotions that i can remember back to different times of christmas and i remember one gift that i really really wanted And I asked my parents for it. A friend of mine had it. And I said, Mom and Dad, what I really want is I want a Stingray bicycle with a leopard seat. Whoa. And then those are really, those are brand new in my day. Um, Those were the hottest types of bikes around. And so I asked Mom and Dad for that, but I didn't know if I'd get it. I didn't know if I'd get it. I remember waking up Christmas morning, wondering if i get it, going into the kitchen where mom and dad were, and there it was, my Stingray bicycle, right, with a leopard seat. And I still remember the joy that I had or the happiness that I felt because this is something that I anticipated. This is something that I want. Now, this happened, like, you know, over 50 years ago. But I can think about it and I can still have joy. And I want you to know that no matter where you are right now, no matter how bad today is, as we look at the scriptures, one of the things that we see is we can always praise God for his past blessings. We can always praise God for his past blessings. We can be thankful for things that have aged We can be thankful for things that once were but now are not. We can be thankful for those moments that we once had. For those of you who are married, I want you to think about this. Were you happy on your wedding day? Was there joy? Was there laughter? Were you thankful to God on your wedding day? Was it a great day? Then be thankful for God for that no matter where you are right now. Maybe now you're in a time of difficulty. Maybe your marriage is going through hard times. But you started out. You had praise to God. You had thanksgiving. And you could be thankful for that. For those of us who have had children. Were you happy when they were born? Were you ecstatic when they were breathing? Were you counting all their toes and they were all there? You count all the fingers, they're all there. And you couldn't wait to bring them home. And you spent hours and hours and hours just looking at them. And all they did was sleep. And it made you so happy. You can thank God for that joy, even though now they bother you, they bug you, they're disrespectful. If they live away from home, they don't even call you anymore unless they want something. But you can still have joy. Not the way they are now, but the way they once were. Did you have joy, homeowners? Did you have joy, homeowners, when you... Got your first house. You got the keys from the realtor, and you opened it up and you went in and you go, Man, this is my new castle, and I am so happy. And now the pipes are breaking, the toilet doesn't work, you've got to mow the lawn, the paint's falling off, and the house seems like oh, such a burden. But you once had joy. Remember that joy. Did you have joy when you got your first job, but now you hate going to work, but you can be thankful that you had that job? Did you have joy when you realized you got into college, but now it's a lot harder than you thought, but you can have still that joy knowing that you got into college. Now, the most important thing, though, is this question. Did you have joy when you came to know Jesus? Did you have joy when you first came to know God? Did you have joy when you first began to read the Bible? Did you have joy when you first began to pray and you saw all the answers to your prayers? But now your faith seems like it's in the doldrums. Life is hard. It seems like God's not answering your prayers. You pray and you pray and God seems further away and further away. But you once had joy. And we can still praise God for that. That's what the psalmist is doing here. He is remembering the time when God had delivered the people of Israel. He says, when the Lord brought back, from, back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. The joy was so great, they had to pinch themselves and go, wow, is this just a dream or is it real? He remembers that time. He says our mouths were filled with laughter and this word laughter means to be merry like when we say Merry Christmas and he says that our tongues were filled with songs of joy and this word joy means to shout with singing like we did singing for joy joy to the world our joy was so great that even unbelievers saw it and they gave praise to God Have you ever had so much joy that those who didn't know Jesus saw you and wondered where that joy came from? That's what it was like for these Israelites. They had so much joy that even the nations, the heathen nations, the pagan nations that didn't know God declared that the Lord of Israel is with them. The Lord has done great things for the Israelites. And what's so meaningful about this is the word Lord there is Yahweh. It is the personal name of God. It is the name when God said of himself to Moses, when Moses says, who will tell me, who will I say sent me? And God says, I am sent you, the Lord, Yahweh. The psalmist could have said that the people around the nations said that Elohim, Sent him. Elohim is different than Yahweh. Elohim is the word for God or gods. It is a word of supreme deity. But the people that saw the Israelites knew something was so different about them that their God was different than the gods of the pagans. Their Lord was different, their Lord was personal. Their Lord was involved in their lives. Their Lord had delivered them. And so the joy that we have in the past can influence the joy that people have in the present. That God wants us to be filled with joy so that other people would know that he is real. God gives us joy so that we can be a light to the world. Verse 3 tells us that then the people said, Not only did the nations around them say it, but the people said, the Lord indeed has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. And this joy is a different word. It just adds to our meaning. In the first one, in verse 2, joy means to shout with singing. But here in verse 3, the word joy means to be blissful or gleeful. It is to have an abundance of happiness and joy. That lifts up our spirits and is visible to other people. Your joy and my joy has a history. We've had joy in the past and remembering it is something that we can do today to give us joy now. God wants us to share this joy with one another. The psalmist says in verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. The nations have said the Lord had done great things for them, plural. But now the psalmist says the Lord has done great things for us. Joy is best when celebrated in community. Joy is best when we share with other people. Joy is something that we enjoy in the presence of good friends. I enjoy golfing. And I, I enjoy doing things with my friends, and usually we had the same foursome, and you just go out golfing, and maybe once a month, maybe twice a month, and you get to know each other, and it's a lot of fun. If somebody has a great shot, you're full joy. If you have a great shot, you share that joy. Can you imagine if you were golfing alone, and you hit a hole in one, and you're like, And there's nobody there to share your joy. And who's going to believe you anyway? (laughs) But if you're in community and you have joy. I remember I was with my foursome back in Orange County. I was with some friends. And a friend of mine hit this shot. And it went high into the air. And the hole was behind a bunker. It was behind a sand trap. So we couldn't see it. But when we went up to the green, we were looking for his ball. And we couldn't find it. And so somebody walked over to the hole and said, it's in the hole. And so we pulled out the ball to make sure it was his, and indeed it was. And one of the guys in our team just yelled out, we got a hole in one. So that everybody in, in voices range could hear it. We shared the joy of even remembering the past. This is the first action that the psalmist teaches us. To share our joy. Now, of course, times can change. And indeed, times did change for the Israelites. And in the time of the writing of this psalm, the psalmist actually is acknowledging that this was not an easy time. This was not a good time. This was indeed a difficult time. And they were going through a lot of trials. And so the psalmist teaches us a second action that we can do. And that is to plead. To plead with God for restoration to what once was lost. To plead with God to return our fortunes. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. This word restore means to turn again. It's a way of saying, God, Please do it once more. I just recounted what you did in verses 1 through 3. Please, Lord, do it again. Lord, work a total change in my life. Bring me back to the joy that I had when I got married. Lord, do a total change in my life. Bring me back into that relationship with my child that I once enjoyed. Lord, bring us back. bring me back the joy and the thanksgiving that i have a job that bring me back lord to the joy and thanksgiving that i have a home even though it may have leaks it's still a place of safety it's still my nest it's still a place of memories but bring me back bring us back again lord to that time of blessing work a total change in my life as many of you know um this is my second go-round here as pastor of the church. And I was the first English pastor 30 years ago, right? 30, many of you weren't even born yet. Uh, but 30 years ago, I came as the first pastor of the church. And we started off with a group of about 25, 30 adults, I believe, and about 15 youth. And we had so much fun. We, we were just filled with so much hope and so much laughter. We had one fellowship group in the church at that time there's multiple ones now but we had one fellowship group and we're really creative so we called it the english fellowship group (laughs) and we used to get together at least once a month and we had so much fun and the joy that we had was attractive and people would come and be with us and god was bringing more and more people then we had to split up and start small groups And those groups were having joy. And we began to have so much enjoyment with one another. And the church grew. And we grew and we grew and we grew and we had so much fun. But then there was a time when we had difficulty. When the joy began to wane. And we started to focus on our sorrows. And I began to focus on my problems. And the joy was removed. Our church has gone through that. We have gone through the ups and the downs. We have seen the people come and we have seen the people go. And it's hurt. And so when I came back the second time, it was a time for us to return to some joy. To regain what had been lost. To restore and to say, Lord, do it again. Change us. But now where we are, is it good enough to have more people here? Is it good enough to have better attendance? Is it good enough to have more money? No, it's not. What we want and what we need is a change in our lives. A fire in our soul. Living water flowing out of our lives. This is what was happening in the lives of the people when they had so much joy and they walked with God. But now they were in a time of drought. And they were thirsty again. Not just in their bodies, but in their souls. And so the psalmist says, Oh Lord, like streams in the Negev, restore us. Now the Negev is a huge, huge desert. And you can see the, the holy land there. And you can see Israel, the southern kingdom, below Jerusalem. And the Negev that's being referred to here in some of your Bibles, it's just called to the south. And so it's the southern part of the Negev. It's this huge, huge desert. this huge wasteland below the Dead Sea. But in that wasteland, it mostly is dry. It's mostly just canyons like this one where nothing seems to be able to grow but there is at the bottom of it every now and then a stream that begins to flow and when the waters come once a a year one month out of twelve the streams begin to fill and they begin to turn into torrents they begin to have rapids they begin to flow like a powerful river And this is what the psalmist is asking for. Lord, bring this river back into my life. Bring this change into my heart. Help it to be again, oh Lord, for us. Help us to have our fortunes restored. Lord, do it again. Fill the stream. Send your water. Do you want water? Then I hope you like rain. Because that's where it comes. The joy of water that brings greenery. The joy of the water that is for our fields. The joy of the water that takes a vineyard and allows it to grow grapes. Or goes and waters a tree that it can have fruit. Comes in rain. And this rain comes from God. And God uses water and he uses rain to teach us many things about the way that he works in our lives. And the first is to know that rain is a sign of God's kindness for us. We talked about food giving us great joy. Well, we wouldn't have food if we didn't have rain. Let's read this verse together. Acts 14, 17. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So God gives the rain from heaven to give us joy. God gives us that rain, even if it was like in Israel, only one month out of 12. That rain fills these wadis, these desert streams, turns them into torrents. That water then can be used to bring water to the field so that food can grow. God brought that rain. God's rain also represents his Righteousness. Of what he brings to us and what he expects of us as well. Let's read Hosea 10:12 together. Sow righteousness for yourselves, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. God's righteousness is God, He is all righteous. He brings upon himself, he does what is right. We live in a world that needs justice. God brings righteousness into this place to tell us that justice will prevail. God brings righteousness to give us comfort, to know that we can do what is right. In fact, God commands that we do righteousness. He says, I want you to sow righteousness. I want you to take righteousness and sow it in your life. To sow means to put it into the soil. Like a farmer taking a shovel and opening up the earth and sowing a seed and throwing the dirt back on. God wants us to sow righteousness. But to do that, we must be willing to go into the unplowed ground. For all of us, there are times when our hearts are like that dry, cracked desert we see there. It's just hard ground. But God tells us to break it up. To break it up and sow righteousness inside. And he promises to bring the rain upon that ground. His righteousness will shower down upon our righteous deeds. This is a metaphor for our lives. That wherever we go, whatever we do, we are sowing, is our world a dry world or not? Do we live in a time of political upheaval in the United States? Do we live in a time where there are wars throughout the world? Do we live in a time where there are governments oppressing their people? Do we live in a time where there is poverty rampant? Do we live in a dry world? God says, you can do something about it. You can sow righteousness by plowing into the ground and doing something about it. We talked about volunteering to help with the homeless ministry, the winter shelter. That is plowing seeds of righteousness in a place sometimes we don't want to go. We don't, we're afraid. We don't know what to expect. It's Thursday night. I'm busy. I'm tired. The week's almost over. I need some rest. But God says, it where it's hard in your heart. Not just hard, like hard where you can't break through, but hard where it's difficult. Yeah, it's difficult. But plow anyway. God wants us to know that his reign is coming, and unless we sow, nothing will grow. God wants us to sow righteousness through our lives, to serve others. Some people, we love the word of God. We love the word of God. But God wants us, if we say that we love the word of God, to do the word of God. And he wants us to sow the seeds that his word tells us to do, the seeds of righteousness. Now, trial also comes upon our lives, and that too is rain. We're familiar with this parable from Jesus. I'll read it. And Jesus is telling the story about two different homes. And he says, the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who's built his house on sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. Rain is a test. Trials are a test. Every Christian is going to face trials. And if we turn away from God because of the trials, then we haven't passed the test. But if we stand the test of trials, if we can stand in the storm, God says our house will be strong, our foundation will be sure, and our faith will be secure. Rain is a test. Rain also teaches us patience. James 7, 5, 7, through 8 says, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. We look forward to the second advent of Jesus. But until that time, God tells us to be patient and to stand firm. But in that, God's going to allow trials to come into our lives. God's going to allow storms to beat against the house of our hearts. But in that time, we continue to plead with God for this rain. We continue to plead with God to do his work. We continue to work with God. We continue to serve Him. We continue to seek Him. We continue to worship Him. We continue to honor Him. And this is what the psalmist does in verses 5 and 6. He teaches us that we must persist in sowing until the harvest time comes. We must persist in sowing until we see the fruit. Verse 5 says those who sow in tears, will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying, and seed-sowing will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. God says to those of us who are sorrowful that we can bring our tears to him and continue to work and continue to sow and continue to believe. Verses 5 and 6 are a call to faith, to persist in sowing until we reap. God makes a general promise to us that those who sow will reap with songs of joy, but he makes a specific promise to those of us who have tears that those who sow in tears and those who go out weeping will someday bring in songs of joy and gather sheaves with them, the sheaves of an abundant harvest. But where? Where do we weep? Where are there tears in our lives? Even now, maybe there's sin, but we can persist and seek God's forgiveness. Maybe there's doubt, but we can persist and seek God's presence. Maybe the ground that we're working in, whether it be our jobs or our home or our relationships or our faith, if it is sterile, fruitless. We try and we try, but we just don't see any fruit yet. And we cry over the hard work of that. But we still work to plant seeds. We still go out into the rain. The weather is bad, but we won't let that storm stop us from sowing seeds. Maybe there are enemies around the fields, but we will still continue to fight the good fight. God tells us through Paul, Paul, Do not grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will reap if you do not give up. Don't give up. Keep plodding along like this person in the psalm. Notice how he goes out into the field. And it's like he puts a seed out in front of him and then he waters the seed with his tears. He drops the seed and then he drops a tear. And then he keeps on going. He drops another seed. And then he drops another tear. And he weeps, but he keeps on going. He believes that God will bring in a song of joy someday. Though now there is tears and sadness in his heart and in his life. Where are these tears in our lives? Maybe they're in those same places that we talked about before our marriages, our children. Our family, our work, our school, our finances, our job, our friendships. But God says, don't give up. Just keep sowing in those things, even if there's tears. Let that joy that you desire continue to come because God is going to bring it. The most important seed that you and I can sow is the seed of faith. A seed that says, I am going to hold on to God. I'm going to believe in God. I'm going to pursue God. That God is going to be seen as that which is number one in my life. Eugene Peterson, who's the author of the Message Bible, says this. Joy that develops in the Christian is an overflow of spirits that comes from feeling good. Not about yourself, but about God. Joy doesn't come because we get what we want. Joy doesn't even come because God gives us what we want. Joy comes because we are with God, and God is with us. Emmanuel. Jesus tells us that we will have sorrow. Jesus tells us that we will have suffering. But he tells us to persist in joy in those times anyway. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Jesus knows we're going to go through sorrow, but he says, still, persist, have joy in that time. Paul makes it abundantly clear in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. When do we rejoice? Always. And so we have seasons that we talked about before where there is difficulty. We have seasons where we know it's a time of weeping and then we have seasons when we know it's a time of laughter. That's one part of our lives. It's the big part of our lives. But on the daily walk through those times, though we will have sadness. We are still to have joy. I'm not there yet. I struggle with that. It's something that I still need to work on. And I'm guessing that's probably true for you too. And God is patient with us. But he still says to us, this is the perfecting of Jesus in our lives. Keep going there. Go to the place that Paul says, I can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Paul was sorrowful in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He was suffering. He was being persecuted. But he always had joy. You and I are to be persistent in seeking perpetual joy. God wants us to have joy because there's an ultimate promise that he gives to us. That there is an ultimate joy that God gives to us. In Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 2, we actually see the first, first three gifts of Advent. We see hope, we see peace, and we see joy. Would you read this with me? Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So ultimately, where does our joy come from? It comes in the hope of the glory of God. It is the glory of God that we are pursuing and seeking in our life. It is the glory of God that God is pursuing and seeking through our lives. We have the hope of peace because we look forward to the glory that we'll share that we have with God. We have faith in Christ because God has given us His grace in which we now stand. And we can rejoice because of the hope of the glory of what God would give. And of what God has already given to us in Christ. We, we talk about the glory of God. But, but what is the glory of God? There's many things, but there's three things that I want us to see. And the first is that the glory of God is the perfection of God. It is everything that God is. It is his moral perfection. It is all of his attributes. It is, it is his infinite, perfect beauty, it is that God has always been and God shall always be. In Romans 9 verses 22 through 23 it talks about God's glory. It says, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls who were made for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom He shows mercy. Who are prepared in advance for glory. We see the sovereignty here. Of God. We see the choice of God. We see that God. Has been patient with those. Who will still end up in destruction. To those who were promised. The gift of love but refused it. To those who were offered the gift of salvation. But said no. And God was very patient with them. He still let them live. And yet they were. Living a life that would end in destruction. But God, in His infinite perfection, continued to let them live and showed grace to them, even though they showed no love or faith in Him. And certainly, that's not what we want to be. We want to be those that Paul talks about when he says that He did this, He was patient with the unbelievers so that believers could continue to live as well. He was patient with the unbelievers so that more people could come to know Jesus. He was not willing that any should perish. And so he waits for his coming so that more can know the Lord. And he does this, Paul says in verse 23 of Romans 9, he does this to make the riches that again is his moral and infinite perfections, his riches of his glory shine even brighter. On those to whom he shows mercy. Who were prepared in advance for glory. That God had preordained those who were to be saved. And he prepared them in advance. So that they might know his glory. And what kind of glory? But the riches of his glory. So not only are Christians destined for heaven. We are destined for glory. We are destined to experience the glory of God in his very presence. To see him in all of his beauty. To see him in all of his attributes. And so our hope, our joy that we long for is the joy that comes in being with him forever. In Romans 8.18, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in Jesus. It doesn't say that, does it? It says that I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that were revealed in us. In us. Where does God want to plant His glory? Where does God want to grow His glory? He wants to grow it in you and me. He wants it to be in people. He invites all of us to be part of His kingdom. He wants us to know the glory of God. He wants us to live in the glory of God. He wants us to share in his glory. He wants us to be in his presence. And not only does he want to do that around us, he wants to do it in us. He wants to bring his glory inside of us that we might know the glory and the joy of having God within and a light within And hope within and peace within. And next week we'll look about love within. That God wants us to have all this in Jesus. And that's what Advent is about. Advent is about Jesus coming to earth. And God saying glory to God himself in the highest through the angels. God wants us to know this glory. Would you read with me this verse that maybe is very familiar to many of us? Let's say it together, John 1.14 the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the father full of grace and truth who came from the father full of grace and truth who is this person he is the word of god he is god in the flesh He made his dwelling among us. He lived on earth. And what did we see? We saw his glory. The glory of the only one. The glory of the father in Jesus. The glory in the face. Of the one who died for us. And the one who rose again to life. The one who shares and offers his glory. To you and to me. And do you have that glory? Are you experiencing that glory? It is the glory that God wants us all to have and to share. He invites you to share in that glory. God invites us to be part of his family forever and ever and know the joy that can never be taken away. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we